we have a model where we remediate old computing styles and then propose the future based on what we already know, but we have trouble asking those difficult questions about what will our lives be like. We know what the, we understand the technology and its continuum, but we don't place social harms and social good on that continuum and begin to predict those outcomes. Hello everyone, my name is Stephen Parton and you're listening to the Feedback Loop by Singularity. This week our guest is Professor and Director of the Digital Life Institute at Ontario Tech University, Isabel Peterson, who specializes in the study of wearables, embodied computing, and similar technologies. In this episode, we take a tour through what Isabel calls the continuum of embodiment, starting with the defining characteristics of the field, exploring its many manifestations and advancements over the previous decades, and even looking into the future when we may see applications such as brain-computer interfaces becoming the norm. Along the way, we discuss the impacts of embodied technology, some of which I don't think I've really heard discussed elsewhere. This includes, but is certainly not limited, to topics like the rhetoric and linguistic impacts of how we talk about technology how that impacts design, how such dynamics impact the likelihood of mass adoption, the societal impacts of these technologies and their rhetoric, and much, much more. And so with all that being said, let's dive into it. Everyone, please welcome to the Feedback Loop, Isabel Peterson. The first place I want to start with you, if we could, is really just to kind of get a big picture view of what you do. What are your research foci? What are the things that you're exploring these days? And why are they interesting to you? Well, um, my research foci has always been uh, future tech and strategizing future tech for human-centric or social-centric or ethical ends. So ethically aligned design and technology would be my broad research area. I started uh, at the University of Waterloo um, a long time ago, studying um, the future idea that we were going to wear technology on the body, that we were going to wear wear computers and that wearable computers were going to happen. But at that time, it was a, very much a tech imaginary. Um, it was used by, the, by militaries around the world. Um, it was used by sort of specialized uh, you know, groups and in specialized domains. So I had to travel around the world to ever see an example of that. I had to go to Zurich, to ETH. I had to go to Georgia Tech or MIT just to see an example of my own research area. Mm. And so what's sustained over time is an about embodied computing has really, uh, I, I've always researched embodied computing. Yeah, and what is embodied computing? If you could kind of give us the uh, the most succinct yeah. definition or accessible definition for that matter. For me, embodied computing is a human-centered design um, model that helps me research how computers are uh, carried. So when you work, you carry computers, you carry them mo mobile phones and laptops. Um, 
then the progression towards wearing computers on the body, whether they're, uh, you know, on your, on your wrist or you're wearing a heads up display, um, for digital, for augmented reality or, um, imp implanting components in the body. Mm. So, uh, implantables and with, and then to the next phase, which is, um, ambient. So the research area covers components that are on, in and around the body and all of the, um, let's say, uh, consequences that comes through the interacting with computer components in that way is what I study. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, and you talked about the progression there. I know in your 2013 book, uh, Ready to Wear, you talk about the continuum of embodiment. Is that kind of what you're speaking to here? Is this, this progression? Yeah. Right. I actually started that with my own um, PhD dissertation mm -hmm. at the University of Waterloo, as I said, in 2004, when um, I saw that we hadn't yet embraced anything wearable or implantable, but that was very much written into the discourse um, that things that we do with, you know, our desktops at the time were, were proving to be inadequate. They weren't meeting um, the kinds of, let's say, uh, ambition, uh, ambitions that people had for what their computers could and should do. Mm -hmm. And I saw that the motives for, um, designing these kinds of technologies were only going to be met through much more, um, immersive, uh, Im immersive types of computing. And so I don't think it's that useful to look at any one of these types of platforms in isolation as if they're not, um, as if they're static that they're uh, dynamic, um, that prototypes and, and research development moves us through these sort of phases, whether we agree to adopt or adapt to these technologies or not. This is a continuum, the continuum of embodiment that's occurring. And how have you seen this continuum develop over, let's say, the last 20 years? I mean, in terms of maybe pace and funding, is it something that has been a steady a linear increase? Is it something that's exponentially adopted? Is it something that's had ebbs and flows? What are you mm -hmm. seeing in this paradigm? Well, absolutely. Um, ebbs and flows. Uh, there's certain ha there certainly has been sort of uh, the, a winter where um, people were only interested in their mobile phones. And that took mm. up a decade, even though most uh, embodied computing paradigms were pro proposed and even strategized before mobile, before you, we were carrying our phones around. So um, there's been a long uh, progression of, um, let's say, development and, and cycles that are drawing on embodied computing and they haven't necessarily even emerged yet. I think what has happened, though, is most people have already adopted the idea that you carry a computer on you, that you um, are going to socialize or work or entertain yourself using a computer that you're carrying with you. And what's happened, I think, this what I call these discourses or rhetorics of persuasion, um, that people want to do that more efficiently or they want to do it more autonomously. Mm -hmm. And we're beginning to sort of run, you know, mobile, uh, or your smartphone is no longer going to fulfill those expectations for the next phase of computing. And so people are beginning to already, you know, many people wear a smart watch. Um, many people wore Fitbit. People got used to wearing cameras on the body, um, through sports. Um, and so the notion of socializing a public or 
certain peoples to the idea of wearing technology. We sort of passed past that. And mm. many people are talking about the next phase of um, and, and experiencing ambient technology, for example, smart houses or smart cities or technologies that are around the body, which are are contributing to all of this transformation. Yeah, this is probably going to be more speculative and, and maybe even out of scope a bit for you. But what do you think is propelling us to adopt these technologies? Is, is it something that's purely the curiosity of the human animal? Is it is it the desire for status and the way that materialistic goods are attached to status? Is it this persuasive language that's used by capitalism to make lots of money by selling gadgets? Do you have a an idea of what really is driving this? Well, you kind of got to the heart of some of the big research questions, I think, with all, all forms of technoculture, right? How, mm-hmm. how, why do we adopt, which for me, adoption is where you decide to, you, you, you decide to purchase a device or use it or try it at a trade show. You're going to begin the process of adopting, but ad- adapting to technology can take decades, if not centuries, um, for us to, to fully sort of adapt to technology. And that process of persuasion, uh, goes on through all of these stages. And I argue the one that we're not paying enough attention to is design. Right. Mm. How, how are inventors persuaded to design something? How are, how are they enabled to design? And what, are, what are the, what ways are they, you know, wh- why is it that we have been inventing wearable technologies for 20 years, implantable technologies for that long? Um, and how, how, what are they, um, you know, how are they persuading us as a sort of future, those future adoptees? Like, how is it that we are being convinced to listen to them or mm. to, um, consider their science legitimate, for example, or is a technology legitimate. And I always think when you're talking about motive or rhetoric or why people are persuaded, there's always a two-way, uh, it always goes two ways. So we're we're contributing to, we have agency, like we're, we are, uh, society is contributing to technocultural adoption, but we're also being persuaded by other rhetors or let's say large tech companies that are, you know, the motive is profit convincing Mm -hmm. us to adopt something so that they can make money. But it, it's a two way. I don't believe in technological determinism that it is. We're only um, persuaded by, by uh, powerful, (laughs) powerful others. Uh, But I think, yeah, we have to always see it as a two way negotiation or dialogic when it comes to design adoption and adaptation to technology. Yeah. You talk about semiotics and rhetoric and, and a lot of the uh, things that I see around your work. Could you expand on that idea a little bit more about the rhetoric there and how semiotics plays into this? Cause that is definitely not like a common thing you hear when somebody's talking about these things, those words stand out as kind of unique. Yeah. Well, semiotics um, in, in, um, in brief is the study of meaning making meaning, using meanings. Um, and it's beyond simply language. I mean, we make meaning with gestures. We make meanings with um, imagery, video. Uh, we make meaning. Um, so it's a science of signs, of uh, how, how we exchange meanings and mi- misuse meanings. Mm. And so at the heart of any uh, human-computer interaction is an exchange of meaning and a, and a semiotic exchange. And um, so if you... In, you know, I started human-computer interaction, uh, trying to understand what 
will be that next phase? How will we exchange meanings in an embodied technology future that will involve carried, worn, implanted, and ambient interfaces? Mm-hmm. And so kind of cutting through that was always a recognition that um, language is motivated. Uh, it might be politically motivated or it might be um, ideologically motivated. And the, in, you know, in my writing, in my theory, there is no, there is no neutral exchange of meaning. All, all language is motivated according, according to um, motives. Mm. So the, bringing it back to um, rhetoric, that helped me understand you know, how if, if an inventor is proposing that we, you know, we wear a heads up display, use augmented reality, all of those questions you ask, well, why, why does the inventor suggest that a user in the future should use it or not? What are the ideal scenarios that are being proposed um, through the, through that usage? And, and, you know, the counter motive, what kinds of harms are embedded in this early design strategy mm-hmm. That is being um, communicated to to us as users or as society members, and that's how, in my view, you 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 address or interrogate um, the idea that technology is neutral when it isn't. And that's been, I mean, that's going on for twenty years. This is it might be new to some to some people to to realize that technology and science is not neutral. But in rhetoric, rhetorical studies, we've We've always talked about how meaning exchange is could be politically motivated, could be um, motivated for all different reasons. Do you feel like, I, I don't know if this is a fair question, but on a scale from like zero to one or zero to 10, you know, use whatever measure you'd like. Um, how are we doing right now currently in terms of letting it be more neutral? You know, acknowledging that as you just said, it can't ever really be neutral. Do you feel like our design and and the way we're building these gadgets and technologies have a lot of um, forceful meaning baked into them or are they more loose and open to interpretation? That's such a, a good question and an important one. Um, I teach uh, a graduate class in computer science. I teach um, ethics, AI ethics, global AI ethics to computer science students. And they come from, um, they have various uh, research areas. Some of them are in game design. Some of them are uh, in computer science and uh, interested in um, health, health domain, like how will, how will AI help, um, you know, re- restore people's, um, you know, aspects of, of their physicality that they would like to have restored or mm-hmm. assistive technologies, I might say. And what I like about this class is, um, we begin to ask this question, the question that you're asking, um, what is um, ethically aligned design? And if, if you know, the proposal to create a certain um, computer software is, is how, how is it motivated and how, how can computer science students ask those questions of themselves as they invent? And what are ways, you know, if, if say, for example, um, I give them the ca- many different case studies about that and show to, you know, try to reveal ways that um, language, language isn't neutral, neither are, um, you know, software programs and the use of software programs is operating in and through this sort of motivated, um, sometimes biased, sometimes not biased 
um, milieu, how, how can they address these concerns and how can they, um, you know, deal with it? And uh, they're, they are extremely th enthusiastic about the course. Um, and they are, uh, I think, you know, ha have are, are heading, dealing with this problem of neutral, the, the assumption that uh, science and technology is neutral head on. Mm-hmm. Do you, did everything change, like just get turned upside down for you in the past year with, with large language models? Like how has that kind of changed your approach yeah. to that course? Well, yeah. So, um, you mentioned my first, my first book in, uh, 2013. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine I was publishing that book as Google Glass was announced. I had written about heads-up displays, uh, see-through augmented reality, visual augmented reality for 10 years and had no idea that it was going to be released. So it, likewise, when um, in November of 2022, when OpenAI released, um, you know, that more rigorous version of, of GPT, that kind of <laughs> was a, sort of an, a moment I, I'm going to remember. Um, but one of the reasons is I had written a book. I had released a book uh, called Writing Futures. And Writing Futures was released in the summer of 2021. And it talked about the future of uh, when, when writers would, you know, professional writers would be collaborating with AI writing agents. Mm. And it argued that our reticence to prepare for this writing future was one of the um, problems with my field of writing studies. Um, it was co-authored with Dr. Ann Hill Dune from the University of Minnesota, who spent her whole time in, in writing, uh, writing studies programs. Um, and she's a full professor in that field and also predicted that, um, you know, there was enough evidence over, you know, I would say five years before that about mm. how these large language models were going to disrupt and even revolutionize writing studies. Yeah. And I'm going to say largely um, it was, wasn't embraced as a sort of a central research area um, in social science and humanities. And, you know, the very people who would get, is going to change their profession is going to change the way we teach writers and teach writing students. Very few of those people were talking about it in their main conferences and main international conferences. And um, it was kind of crickets. So the crickets around when we released that book during pandemic and um, didn't have much uptake. So when it happened, um, I mean, it was exciting. It was also somewhat terrifying that uh, it was even, I thought it would be um, adoption would be slower. And didn't yeah. think it would happen that five million people in five days or, and correct, if I'm wrong, I'm, I apologize, but I think that's what it was that would happen that quickly. And people were, you know, completely stunned by what had happened. And um, I think, yeah, I mean, there were, there were many journalists writing about it. New York Times was writing about it. Kate, Katie Metz was, was writing about it. And, and so if you had been following the journalism, at least, or tech journalism, then this wouldn't have been news, in, in really. But if you had sort of said, well, you know, that, that can't ever happen and, and sort of uh, decided that um, AI was still sort of a far off future, you would be surprised. But Do you worry about being blindsided by the continuum 
of, of wearables that we've been talking about here. Um, being blindsided by them in the same way we were blindsided by large language models? Are we potentially, for example, going to take this life optimization, <clears throat> life hacking, uh, you know, on body sensors that people use to be really healthy? And yeah. it seems really um, innocuous at first. And then six months later, it's like every single person in the world is giving data about their biomarkers to everyone in the world. And we don't yeah. even have any legislation for it. Like, does that, is that something that concerns you at all? I've always been concerned about um, this future that I write about. I've never been a tech an optimist. I've always said, if we don't strategize future design, if we don't strategize it, and 10 years isn't enough, it should be sort of 20. We should be now trying to understand what our lives will be like in 20 years and um, try to, to, as best we can, look at the state of our inventions and ask, okay, well, you know, no one's going to use this, but they will in 20 years. So what can we do to prevent all of this sort of harms that we're, we're learning about now? And I mean, I think one, um, you know, one, can, one example is brain, brain computer interaction. And one of the interesting things for me is brain computer interactivity moves across the continuum, right? So there are a lot of have been for, you know, at least 10 years wearables that you know, can read, read brainwaves or read, read affect or read, there's biofeedback. But then we're proposing the sort of implanted tech based on our experiences with carryables. So you can often hear those inventors talking about, oh, it's going to be like, a, like my phone or an Apple Watch. Um, Neuralink, for example, talks about its, um, its brain implants as, as, as the Apple Watch or the phone. So we have a model where we remediate old computing styles and then propose the future based on what we already know, but we have trouble asking those difficult questions about what will our lives be like. We know what the, we understand the technology and its continuum, but we don't place social harms and social good on that continuum and begin to predict those outcomes, even though we have many examples of how emergence happens. So I am I am obviously always very concerned and I think that we need to we, we need to not be afraid to project make these projections. Yeah, well, some of the things you mention in your work that could be diminished or maybe are impacts that should be considered are things like creativity, privacy and our sense of self. Could you maybe speak to maybe some of your speculations or, or ways that you see this unfolding if, if you were kind of forecasting into that future? Yeah. Well, I can tell you about a case study I worked on um, called iMind, the iMind device. So um, five years ago, sort of 2017, um, 2018, I started to base um, some of my case studies on uh, brain sensors or these sensors, for example, that sensed um, EEG, which became very much consumer um, consumer devices any, anyone could buy, like certain headsets, would, you could buy these technologies and they would sense our biofeedback and people would use them to help themselves relax or to, um, you know, for mindfulness, those kinds of things. But what I every time I see a brain a sensor, a biofeedback sensor, I think about how that's going to become much more invasive 
so for example, if it's sensing sort of emotion, emotions, sort of affective computing, what happens when it can really um, interact with our, our private thoughts or our private feelings or our memories? And in order to go through that case study, I, it was a media arts study and created a brain interface that let us choose digitized, digitized paintings based on our biofeedback. But what it did is reverse the paradigm and used it as a, instead of simply being sensed, humans were choosing, were using it as age agentative. How can we select a painting based on our, our, our so-called happiness, our affect? And one, you know, one, one way that I work towards understanding future technology is good, always try to imagine what would the next step is. And that was a really interesting um, media arts experiment because people were, Everything they reacted with delight. They act, reacted with fear, um, and we used a collection of um, paintings by Paul Clay, um, and they were a large set of digitized paintings um, from the Met that were open to scholarly um, access. And so the interface, iMind interface, you'd put it on, you'd wear the headset, and suddenly paintings either matching your emotional um, how you were feeling. We, we curated them by tagging them with um, these, you know, four categories of emotion. And people were ha finally got, you know, I, uh, the argument I was making is um, this is can be reductive, right? Can we really reduce people's emotions to these categories? Uh, is that isn't that problematic? Um, isn't that uh, aren't you reading your, you know, this device is has determined how I'm or is characterizing how I'm feeling at this moment in time, which I saw as um, a privacy invasion of privacy or digital privacy. But what, you know, by having this media arts project, and we showed it in Japan and we showed it in, in the United States, was to get people to begin to think, okay, what is this tech? It might only be a sensor now. It's a sensing technology now. But what happens when it becomes a, a controlling I can use it to control something about my environment and my creative context. And that led me to really come to the conclusion that in some ways, so for example, if that was you're wearing that sensor in your own house and you're able to change the paintings in your room according to your mood, mm -hmm. that might be sort of a liberate, you know, a wonderful experience and one that would help people, you know, see paintings they don't get to see. All of these paintings aren't even on view. This is the other thing is some digitized art is, is digitized because uh, we only are able to access um, artworks, you know, that are actually hanging in, in a museum. So much of that content is um, is stored in warehouses, storehouses. So what I liked about the project was we could enable people to have a different cultural experience. But at the same time, I mind was very much an ironic play on words. I mind you were reading my mind. I mind. Mm that um, my embodiment has been, you know, you're negotiating with my brainwaves without my permission, without me really understanding what that relationship with technology or, and it was very much a precursor to, to AI. Um, you know, what AI is going to enable now will probably make those kinds of technologies much more, um, enable them to actually happen. Yeah, I mean, you're touching on something here I've been thinking a fair bit about lately. Um, and I recently talked to Chris Ryan, who wrote a book called Civilized to Death. And um, he was talking about, you know, we're in zoos of our own creation. 
But the thing that worries me about being in a zoo of our own creation is I don't think humans usually know what's good for them, right? I think we design worlds around us that uh, maybe aren't always the healthiest, right? So I wonder if you see this as maybe a step in that direction, so to speak, where maybe it would be good for us to be exposed to paintings that don't match our emotional resonance because that would make us more emotionally robust or, you know... I don't know. Is that something that you think about with this? Is that that relationship with novelty and kind of being pigeonholed into something? Right. So that's a very interesting, that's very interesting. And I haven't read that book, but I really like that metaphor and I agree with it. Um, for, for iMind, we changed the algorithm at one point and did that. We actually mm. made it the opposite. And the reason we did that is we found that um, most people um, were, uh, you know, calm calm and seeing very calm, calm paintings rather than anything else, right? So people come to your trade show booth and look at your invention and they're all, they're in that sort of lighthearted mood, but yes, absolutely. We weren't able to, um, sort of tap the next, the next frontier, which would be, um, all the full range of human emotion. And I mean, that was also the point that, um, these, these technologies are, are reductive. Uh, I mean, they're, you know, to, to classify something as a phenomenal as human emotion into these basic categories is so problematic. And I think, um, you know, we had, we had some, finally did have some experiences with that when we showed it to people who, um, are not necessarily Luddites, but don't want to see our techno, techno futures involved technology to this extent. And we did see finally paintings that were, Visualize. We, we would visualize this on several screens in the room so other people could see the emotions of one person. And finally, we did see it firing what would be, um, you know, paintings that were inspired by wars or that were inspired by um, tragedy and those kinds of things and realized, you know, if people were experiencing this in their own home, the full breadth of their emotional output would be quite different than it was you know, in the scenarios we had. Uh, and we started to work on other emotional output like fear. We had a project called Fearmonger and imagined what if AI chose horror films? What if, what if AI chose to uh, modulate how much fear someone was experiencing in a film situation? And we had variations on this um, using biofeedback, galvanic skin response and heart rate and um, participants who were part of this performance um, to sort of increase and decrease fear uh, for this for the person wearing a um, virtual reality headset. And again, the the what we were trying to get at is what if you you mentioned agency earlier? What if you take agency out of the out of the hands of the person in a cinematic situation and said they lose control over deciding to go to a specific film or a watch it in a specific way. What if an AI decides how mm -hmm. you will experience horror film? And it was interesting. I personally don't know much about horror film, but we got a curator uh, from a university called Trent University, who's, uh, his PhD was in horror, hmm. and he chose the kinds of clips we would use to, to do this. <laughs> Given what you've seen, do you feel like people would actually be willing to take the next step in this continuum because you know we obviously don't probably want to go too deep into the political realm but vaccines for example are i mean so minimally invasive in terms of 
what they do to the, I mean, there's a big argument there, but my point being is that people were not excited about vaccines. People are very distrusting of science these days. They don't like the idea of anyone putting anything in their body, even if it potentially means keeping them healthier or giving them some advantages around the world. Do you think people are going to be willing to actually take on something like an implantable or uh, interface and, and let this technology get access to those parts of themselves? Because this is much different than carrying something around, right? Like a phone. Absolutely. How do you feel like humanity is going to respond to that, that level of advancement? Yeah. Um, you know, so, so many answers come to mind because I think this <laughs> could be answered in a three volume set of books because these are, this is the question, right? Will people adopt? Um, I mean, if you keep framing uh, implanted, you know, brain computer interaction as if it is a phone. So, um, then people might. So you, these, uh, inventors, so big tech inventors, Elon Musk, as I said, often refers to, um, the future of, um, brain computer interaction or sort of neuro, neurotechnologies as on that continuum and says, well, this is an, inve an inevitable and imminent future which it isn't, but using that rhetoric helps people, um, it helps them not be as fearful for, for the future, right? They'll say, well, you know, if it's just the same as wearing, uh, you know, carrying a phone and it's the same companies I, I trust or legitimate, then, then they might. I mean, the paradox is always that even though people understand or are starting to question their privacy or, or their concerns over it, typically still adopt many of the technologies, even despite that, those concerns. But I also think um, the other rhetoric or that you hear is the counter fear, right? That if we don't, if we don't adopt, um, you know, then AI will be superior to us and we will fall behind. We will become obsolete. And this is for me, a, a transhumanist rhetoric that um, obfuscates our ability to question some of these technologies, right? And ask difficult questions at this point in design um, so that we don't have to adopt without understanding what we're adopting. I mean, having said that, I think, um, you know, in medical, in the, the other, one of the other big issues is uh, there are always sort of um, implications or they're, they're, I think they're called, they're dual technologies, right? So you can, you could adopt a technology that will help people in a very specific, um, specific way. So for example, if um, people have difficulty or challenges and we need an assistive technology that might help them, um, you know, say regain a mobility or that they, they choose to regain. At the same time, then, if you, if you suggest that that would be good for a mainstream audience or say everyday users, um, that could become adopted before we have before we have a chance to ask questions about harms for that other audience. Mm -hmm. so, so, what is good for one group might be very bad for another in very reductive <laughs> terms. Yeah. I mean, speaking of the the medical uses there and the, the way that we could aid people, I think both of us would agree that there are benefits here. There are there are things that we can see that would be really beneficial, especially medically speaking. So could you maybe talk about a little bit the ways that embodied computing could improve health or maybe even stuff that is more focused on productivity, like efficiency, focus, creativity, and these things? 
Yeah. So I would always start by saying that, um, who, you know, the determination of whether you need or should adopt a technology for a medical reason should be the person's um, decision, right? That the agency should always lie with uh, the person who's choosing to adopt it or adapt to it. So that I think um, sometimes technologies are proposed for a group um, and sort of foisted on them. So we, I would start by saying it has to be whether the person wants to adopt it. Mm-hmm. Um, but my own chapter in Embodied Computing, which was co-authored by, um, I should say, doc- Dr. Andrew Iliadis and I, co-edited by, not authored, I uh, wrote a chapter on body area networks. And body area networks are um, the sort of next phase of Wi-Fi. And what's fascinating and fascinated me is it, it would um, combine carried, worn, and implanted technologies and it would provide um, a sort of a safer, more secure Wi-Fi um, far, far beyond what we would have with Bluetooth and um, enable, you know, your, let's say, uh, in very simplistic terms, your implanted devices to talk to each other mm-hmm. and, and, and send information to um, external actors, doctors, hospitals, and maybe help with diagnosis or help with remote patient monitoring or enable us to finally um, let some of these technologies converge in a way that would be beneficial to us as patients. However, at the same time, you can imagine the double-edged sword that we would lose a we could lose agency, right? We wouldn't be able to decide, um, you know, do who, you know, what if you don't want, uh, you know, one of those external actors to know about your heart condition? I'm using mm-hmm. this just anecdotally or, um, you know, how, that your energy level is significantly diminished. Could this affect you as a worker? Could it affect you in your job? But these, this technology was proposed, um, you know, more than 10 years ago. It hasn't happened yet. So it's very much a historic um, design, sort of historic idea that people are using the standard or trying to use the standard, but we haven't seen it emerge for us. Like we don't, you know, have, we don't use this. And, you know, it's fascinating that it moves through the body, not just over the body. And so it could be very secure, right? If you're passing information through the body, uh, it could be harder to steal, could be much more, it could be a safer way to exchange information. And so, you know, and, and, and could connect. Um, I mean, I think of my own invention, the fear monger device. What if, you know, affect and uh, those kinds of signs were connected to um, you know, heart rate, all that was connected within the body by exchanging, informa- exchanging uh, information, you could then really have um, more personalized and enjoyable experiences. Having said that, it's rife for um, corruption by actors yeah. that manipulate that. When you say medical there, my brain immediately goes to regulatory. And I guess <laughs> I almost feel like I know the answer to this question before I ask it, but has have there been any legislative policies regulations anything you've seen at all that has made an attempt to have some kind of restriction or limitation or ethical consideration around these technologies like is there anything on the table right now to to really like help us not shoot ourselves in the foot there are in um augmentation technologies in ai in technical communication the current book we, we dedicate a chapter to starting to look at governance 
regulations, um, policy standards to chart what is happening internationally and uh, locally in, in what, you know, aug augmentation technologies are um, really so incredibly popular. Um, they are, uh, I think, for, for all the reasons we've talked about this, that people do start, are starting to think about, you know, could I live longer? Could I, can I, could I remember everything? Could I remember more? Could I be better? It, it is that, um, the discourse uh, that is driving that. And the question, there are, um, certain jurisdictions, um, like Illinois that has, um, you know, done more work, uh, in, you know, and trying to um, monitor people's privacy and biofeedback and, Bioethics is obviously um, interacts uh, overlaps with AI ethics, right? How do if you're regulating AI, you should be also regulating. You should make sure that they're um, uh, overlapping because the technologies will overlap. Um, I'm not um, an, an expert in legal studies at, by any stretch, but uh, I find generally that it comes out after the fact, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's difficult to talk about regulation for a technology that hasn't been adopted yet, right? If people aren't using it or you can't, it's, and I, I actually think where we need to begin is um, university level research ethics to a certain extent ask if, if because so much, so much of our research happened, it does happen in government um, research uh, enterprises, but it also happens at universities and, um, many of the inventors I followed for the past 20 years, I started following them at, at, in universities and asking, okay, well, if we could get that as part of a research ethics agenda, um, what are the social harms? What are, um, ha what happens, you know, if there's discrimination or could be potential for discrimination by when you're inventing this? And then I think what would happen was that there would be better, um, integration with social science and humanities and science and technology. Yeah. And that divide, which gets worse, I think, is, is this is one of the reasons. Yeah, it's funny to hear you say that. I'm laughing just because I feel like uh, I hear that more and more, no matter who I talk to. That one of the big complaints is the separation between the humanities and the and the STEM people. It uh, right. se yeah. seems to be a growing problem. Yeah. Well, given given your research, given your understanding of the uh the cultural influences of, of language and <clears throat> our stories i'm going to ask you a, a kind of a big question here as we come nearer end which is what are what what things are you looking forward to is there something that really like stands out as really promising is there something that stands out as really negative or is there maybe something that's in the gray area in between that you feel like is just simply not getting uh, the attention it deserves. You can uh, tackle each of those or one of those. Pick, take your choice. Um, but how, how do you feel about these these paths forward? Yes, that is a big question. Um, I mean, I I see myself as a researcher who stands stands back and looks at technology for better or worse. Um, not I I I wouldn't say that I. I'm a cheerleader for technology ever. I'm always a person who's going to look at it and analyze it and maybe predict what's going to happen, but not as a person who is an enthusiast or a cel celebrate, I'm celebrating it. So I'm saying that because I, I think this, 
if brain if brain implants do occur, I think, you know, that would be a lot of my research, 20 years of research, publications, talking about it, researching it. And so that would be that would be a um, a complete shift, right? A paradigm shift in um, everything, right? The way that we use technologies and will dramatically change um, most of our, you know, it'll change work, entertainment, medicine, um, and also, you know, could change the way that we are harms against humanity or all those things. So I'm, I'm curious to know if that will ha- actually happen uh, in my time as a as a researcher, and if I will have the opportunity to weigh in on that when it actually happens, I would be very excited for that because I have, you know, I I've I've invested so much in researching around it. So um, I think that would you know would be a, it would fascinate me, and I I think I would have a lot to contribute to that you know paradigm complete paradigm shift in computing. Yeah, let's throw out a random number here. By 2030, what's the likelihood that there's a, a at least a sm- subset of people who adopted a, a BCI, a, a brain-computer interface? So non-wearable, right? So wearables will, I think, be very popular BCI devices because you can take it off, right? So okay, yeah. not being able to take it off is the huge um, separator between the two. But having said that... Um, I mean, the only way to achieve some of these really weighty, uh, ambitious claims would be to actually implant it. Um, so, I uh, remarkably, I'm. I always think it will take longer than it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, these kinds of things. So, um, and that's probably because proprietary trade secrets are not really revealed <laughs> in any way that I can. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I would be comfortable saying that I think it by. T- 2030 there will be users yeah yeah fair enough well uh isabel any any closing thoughts i want to give you a a last chance here before we officially shut down the conversation to just speak to anything maybe that came up that you would like to mention again or something that you would like to promote maybe a study you're working on that you need volunteers for anything at all that you'd like to talk about here at the end well, we did release our book, um, Augmentation Technologies and Artificial Intelligence and Technical mm-hmm. Communication, Designing Ethical Futures. Um, and uh, so that was with Rutledge um, co-authored with Anne Hill Dune and I. Um, and I am always um, plugging my research institute, the Digital Life Institute, um, which clusters all these different researchers, multidisciplinary um, collaborations amongst people to help um, help with our our digital life futures and um, it's sort of ethical the ethical deployment of these technologies so that would be the only thing and just uh, to thank you 